1: Uh, Okay, so how many guns do you own and what kinds? Um,
2: So I uh, own a variety of different uh, guns. I I own 22 firearms, seven shotguns. I own four handguns, five rifles, and I have a couple of uh, antique sort of collector-type guns.
1: And they're all in a big safe together?
2: They are all in a big safe together in my house.
1: Brendan Campbell lives in Hartford, Connecticut. He actually hunts deer with a bow and arrow. But he shoots duck and geese with the firearms in that safe. He's been into guns since he was 12 years old at Boy Scout camp.
2: You know, one of the activities we did was going to the rifle range and shooting a 22 caliber uh, rifle, and uh, I enjoyed it. It was it was kind of cool. I didn't have guns in my house, and uh, I don't know there was something mysterious about it. Anyway, the the, the interest that I had in the boy scouts at the rifle range sort of evolved into an interest in, in hunting. And, you know, some of my buddies in high school were small game hunters and were always inviting me to go out. And when my 16th birthday was coming up and my parents asked me what I wanted, I said, geez, you know, I want to, I want a shotgun so I can, you know, have my own gun when I go hunting with my buddies. And
1: what did they think about that? Um,
2: well, my mother grew up in Queens, New York, and knew nothing about guns, and she was not at all excited about it. My
1: dad... So he pled his case. He told his parents, I'll take a safety course, I'll store the gun under lock and key.
2: And After a lot of discussion, you know, they agreed, and I got a Mossberg 12-gauge shotgun for my 16th birthday.
1: After that, Brendan joined the NRA. Then he bought more guns. Was there a moment where you really realized the power of the weapon that you had?
2: Well, I think if you hunt with a gun, and I did when I was in high school, you, you, you realize that, that you can cause harm, you know, albeit intentional harm, to the, to the animals that you're, you're, you're hunting. But I think you don't really see the, the, the really devastating power of, of guns until you start taking care of patients who are the victims of gun violence.
1: Dr. Campbell is a pediatric surgeon. That means he sees some of the most brutal firearm injuries. Kids accidentally shot. Sometimes suicide attempts. Do you feel like being a doctor changed the way you thought about guns? Well,
2: I, I, yes. I, I think it, 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 it changed the way I think about guns in a couple of ways.
1: But the thing is, he still has those twenty-two guns. He still loves taking his Labrador retriever out hunting. So over the last few years, as the gun debate has become more and more partisan, Brendan Campbell has been looking for a third way.
2: You know, all too often, you know, you have the gun owners who say, you know, any restriction is bad and, you know, our guns are going to be taken away and our liberties are going to be reduced. Um, by the the other side. And then the other side says, you know, all guns are bad. You know, we should ban all handguns or all firearms. And, you know, the truth lies somewhere in between.
1: I'm Mary Harris. This is What Next. All week long, I have been watching my Twitter feed fill up with these images. Doctors in blood-soaked scrubs. Pictures of wrecked hospital rooms. Physicians have been using this hashtag, This Is My Lane, to argue that their voices are essential to the gun control debate. But today, I wanted to give you a slightly different perspective, because Dr. Brendan Campbell and his team of gun-owning physicians have just issued their own set of recommendations. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. When
2: I tell my story about being a gun owner, being a parent, being a husband, and being a surgeon, people are more receptive to hearing what I have to say because I, they recognize that that I'm not uh, not at one extreme or the other. I, I can I can see it from both sides.
1: This is what I liked about talking to Brendan too. He sees both sides of this debate, and when he looks back, even at his own behavior, he can see why gun control is important. Like. When he was a teenager, with that brand new shotgun,
2: I, I was responsible uh, with it in some ways, but I was irresponsible with it uh, in in other ways. You know, we when I would go hunting out in the woods with my buddies, we were all pretty smart about how we handled guns. But I, you know, I also vividly remember, you know, trying to impress this girl I was dating by, you know, taking it out and you know shooting it one night in this remote part of the town I grew up in and you know, and then just having it, you know, in the on the floor of the back seat of the station wagon we were sort of cruising around, you know, the town in. So
1: That's so interesting. Like looking back, would you give sixteen year old you a gun?
2: Well, I would give a sixteen year old me access to a gun, but I, I would give um you know, would give much more direct supervision. You know, as the parent of a of a ten-year-old and thirteen-year-old girl, I, you know, I've I've taught both of my daughters to to shoot a twenty-two caliber rifle in a controlled setting that's very safe. But you know, they don't have access to guns in in my home, and and I don't think teenagers should have access to guns for you know for a couple of reasons. One, I think they put themselves at risk of doing something silly by, you know, having a gun out when friends are around and that leads to an accidental shooting. But the the real risk that is posed to preteens and adolescents is a risk of suicide. You know, there's a lot of impulsive uh, behavior that uh, happens at that time, and, um, and, and that's why we end up with a lot of firearm suicides.
1: I wonder what you thought when you saw the Not My Lane protest, the doctors going online, and posting pictures of themselves dealing with gunshot injuries in response to the NRA saying that they should stay in their lane and not talk about gunshot victims.
2: well, I've seen it and I, and I understand where they're coming from with that and and it, and it's frustrating as a clinician to be someone who is uh, caring for victims of gun violence. I mean, it's frustrating and 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 there's nothing worse than having to tell. Uh, family that's one of their uh their loved one has been, you know, killed or seriously injured by uh by a gun. But, you know, the easy thing to do is to to advertise that you know, that that this is a problem and that, you know, that you want to do something about it. The the hard thing is to actually do something about it and, and to do it, something about it you have to, you know, really get down and dirty and identify, you know, what is the root cause of violence.
1: As a doctor with guns, do you feel like you're kind of in the closet about it?
2: Uh, You know, I used to be, you know, I used to be, I I wouldn't go out of my way to tell people, but uh, I'm not like that anymore. I don't think it's anything that, that I need to apologize for. You know, I'm I'm proud of the fact that I'm I'm working on this issue uh, in a way that's a little bit different than some of my colleagues. And, you know, I, I, I'm a responsible gun owner. I, my guns are stored safely and um, and I'm trying to make a difference on this issue. And and I think I can contribute in a more constructive way by telling people about it rather than keeping it hidden.
1: Yeah. I mean, when I was struck when you talked about treating guns as a public health problem, You know, you said we need to take the same approach with guns that we do with bicycle safety. Can you explain what you mean by that a little bit?
2: Well, I mean, there are all sorts of examples I can give you. You know, we we see fewer deaths in in house fires because we use smoke detectors. We see fewer head injuries in kids because we uh, have laws that require them. To wear helmets, you know fewer teenagers die on the road because we have graduated driver licensing programs. You know those same models can be applied to gun injury, um, but we haven't uh, for a variety of different reasons. But I think you know the first big step is we need to fund uh, research at the federal level uh, on this issue, and you know this has been blocked by the NRA and by politicians, and and if you don't make gun owners part of the solution on this issue, you're not going to be able to solve the problem.
1: A few years back, you joined this group of doctors that's committed to coming up with a public health strategy on firearms. How did that happen?
2: Well, it, it, it's been a long road, and I'll, I'll give you the short version. I remember being in college, and there was a paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine called The Tale of Two Cities. Was published late 80s, early 90s. I don't recall, but this this changed my perspective on on gun ownership. And it basically looked at Seattle, Washington, and Vancouver, uh, British Columbia, two very similar cities from a socioeconomic standpoint, geography, ethnicity standpoint. And your risk of dying in a gun-related event was dramatically increased in Seattle. And they were able to show pretty conclusively that it related to access to guns and particularly handguns in Seattle. And and that really forced me to sort of take a step back and, and look a little bit more critically at gun ownership and the epidemiologic basis of injury and, and violent death from guns. And, before
1: that, had you been before that had you just said, like, people don't get it, people don't get it. Well,
2: I was a little bit, you know, I belonged to the NRA for about three years when I was a teenager, and 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 around the time I read that article, I I stopped belonging to the NRA, and and my view on on violent death from guns changed significantly, and ever since then, I've followed the debate, and and fortunately, in in a leadership role through the Committee on Trauma at the American College of Surgeons, we were able to begin working more aggressively on this issue. I think, you know, Sandy Hook certainly changed the conversation for the American College of Surgeons. They stayed away from the issue of gun violence, but after uh the Sandy Hook, they it was an issue that we we very much wanted to uh take action on and we didn't care if some of the membership became upset. It was it was important enough that that finally that, that we could at least Focus, uh, focus on it, and, and trying and to be, try and begin to make a difference.
1: So, were you recruited to join this group, or did you lead it, and you were recruiting other people?
2: Well, uh, I was invited to join it. So, the head of the Cot, Dr. Ronnie Stewart in San Antonio, um, has been interested in this issue for a couple of years, and uh, you know, my interest. Well, I've I've always been interested in it, but what got us going is we um, this. FAST work group, the uh, firearm strategy team was, you know, 18 uh, surgeons uh, across the United States who are gun owners. And, you know, we had a couple of conversations by phone, and then we all flew out to Chicago this past June. There were, you know, folks coming down from Alaska, South Dakota, you know, the Midwest, all over, you know, very good geographic representation. And, um, you know, there there are some, some Democrats, some Uh, Republicans, some former military, some current military, sat down around a table, and we looked at all of these things, and we said, you know, which of these things that have been proposed to prevent gun injuries can we all unanimously support? And that's how, you know, we came up with the recommendations that were uh, published this week in the Journal of the American College of Surgeons. Mm
1: this firearm strategy team's recommendations. And remember, the bulk of the people on this team are gun owners. They look remarkably like the recommendations other doctors' groups have made over the years. They support background checks, firearm storage requirements, formal gun safety training. So I asked Brendan, what did the doctors disagree about?
2: Well, I think they're, what many gun owners are very concerned that Bans on particular types of weapons are going to restrict their liberty, which is guaranteed by the Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. So, uh, one example would be we couldn't agree on a ban on assault weapons, uh, but what we could agree on is that maybe they should, you know, there should be a reclassification and there should be increased restrictions on ownership of that. Type of firearm, and you know personally, I, I would support, I would and do support a ban on assault weapons. But I would also be okay if you needed additional training and needed to, if you were going to choose to own one of those weapons, that it had to be stored securely. So I think there's 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 some, I have some ability to um, to compromise on, on an issue like that.
1: There were a couple members in this group of doctors. Who didn't secure their weapons? I'm wondering if that was sort of controversial within the group.
2: Well, so so that that's a very uh, a very a good point that you're making, and I think that's something that I think is important for non-gun owning Americans to understand. So I, I store my guns at home in a safe locked that they're they're it's very difficult for people to get access to them. There are people in the United States who do not feel safe in their home and want to have a gun that is uh, accessible to protect themselves from a home invasion from living in a uh, in an unsafe neighborhood or you know for occupation whatever and whether you agree with that or not, that is their they're right. And and I think you have to accept that, you know, whether it's right, whether it's wrong, whether you agree, whether you disagree, there are people who store their guns that way.
1: It's interesting, though, in your recommendations, you do recommend that if someone isn't securing their guns, they be held liable for what happens with them.
2: Right. There was a lot of discussion on this issue. And uh, I think some people are concerned, how can I be held Responsible for for uh, for something like that, but what, after talking it through, we were able to say, "Hey, if you recognize that a gun in your home has been uh, stolen or removed somehow, it is your responsibility as a gun owner to make sure that it gets reported to the authorities." So, I think we were able to get everybody to agree on that eventually.
1: Yeah. I mean, like the one like lingering thing for me is I had just read an article about Massachusetts and their gun laws and how people look to them as a model. But their model is pretty intense. Like you have to apply for a license before you get a gun and like the police department can just say no for any reason. And I, you know, it's it just seems like those are the things that we're going to butt heads on probably.
2: Well, we will, but the the but he, let me say why that's important and why that's good. So Connecticut like Massachusetts has very stringent laws on on guns. You know, you can't walk in and out the same day. You know, you need to have a permit or a license to be able to buy ammunition. And and a lot of people, a lot of gun owners resent that. But my comment is if you're going to go into the store and buy ammunition or buy a gun, it should be different than buying, you know, bread, milk and eggs, right? It's not, as best as we can tell anyway, it's not a coincidence that states like California, Massachusetts, New York, Connecticut have lower incidence of firearm-related injuries. They have strict laws on gun ownership and lower uh, rates of ownership, and that correlates with fewer injuries and death, death by guns. You know, states with lax laws, Nevada, Alaska, Mississippi, Arkansas, have very Uh, have very high rates of gun injury and death, and and that correlates with high ownership and and less strict gun laws.
1: For now, Brendan's taking as many precautions as he can, personally. His 10- and 13-year-old daughters, he's taught both of them how to handle his weapons. Mostly, he says, they're just not that interested in them. Changing policy, though, that will be complicated.
2: Um, a subset of this group there were about five of us met with the National Rifle Association right after Trump was elected. So they weren't in a very collaborative mood. But we you know, we, we wanted to meet with them and see what we could potentially work together on and how we could um, you know, maybe make some progress on this issue. And I remember feeling very frustrated after and, and Ronnie Stewart, the lead author on this, sort of was noticing my frustration and he said, Brendan, we don't have to agree on everything. We just have to find some common ground so that we can, we can work productively on, on some aspect of this. And guns are going to be part of American culture and society, whether we like it or not. And, and the most productive way to find ways to lower risk is going to require engaging gun owners and non-gun owners alike.
1: Brendan Campbell, thank you so much for talking to me.
2: Yeah, it was a pleasure chatting with you guys today. It was a lot of fun.
1: And one more thing before we take off for the day. Hi. Hey, Jim. How are you? Good. Where are you right now?
0: Uh, I'm at the Capitol. I'm in the press gallery.
1: I called up Jim Newell, who covers Congress for Slate, because he has been watching the new freshman class arrive on the Capitol.
0: For me, like, there are a lot of people who are my age or younger. There's like half a dozen, which is unnerving. (laughs) There are millennials on the Hill now. There's lots of gramming going on.
1: So on election night, Nancy Pelosi took to the stage at Democratic National Headquarters in D.C. and rightfully claimed victory. She's helped to usher in one of the most diverse classes of congressmen and women in American history. Seemed almost inevitable. She'd be retaking her crown as Speaker of the House. But in the last few days, that has started to look a lot less likely. So am I right there? (laughs) Is everything I said right there? That is—yeah, you are. Because usually a minority leader in Pelosi's position would be kind of cruising to Speaker of the House, right?
0: Correct. So— The way it usually works or the way it's supposed to work is that a party nominates their speaker nominee in in a caucus vote where you just need 50 percent of your party. And then you're the nominee to the floor. And then the entire party, the majority party, is supposed to back you on the floor.
1: What's happening instead?
0: So what's happening instead is that there's a group of... um, Seventeen or so right now, uh, rebels who don't like Nancy Pelosi for one reason or another, who are vowing to vote against her on the floor because they have realized that you can vote against her on the floor. And even though it's against caucus rules, you know, what are they going to do to you? Are they going to kick you out of Congress or something? No. <laughs> There's this um, pretty much a loophole in the congressional rules here that make it so, you know, for... All these lower positions, you only need 50% of your caucus, but on the floor, you need 50% of the whole House. So Nancy Pelosi is looking like she'll need 218 out of somewhere between 232 and 234 Democratic votes, depending on how some special elections come out, assuming no Republicans vote for her, which, you know, we'll see. And that's really difficult math. <laughs>
1: I love that you call them rebels. I'm picturing, like, Yosemite Sam in my head. I know.
0: I'm, I'm trying to think of a better word than that. Uh, yeah, it makes them sound a lot cooler than they are.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, we all know that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is not going to be on Team Pelosi. She spent her first day in Congress protesting in Pelosi's office, right?
0: Oh, oh I, I think she probably will be on Team Pelosi. Oh,
1: interesting. Well,
0: that's what's so interesting about this is, you know, I— when I talk about this challenge to Pelosi um, on Twitter, I get a lot of lefty feedback saying, "Good, she should go. She's a corporate centrist. Get her out of there." But this rebellion—again, I'm calling it rebellion. I hate saying that, but this is being caused by uh, moderate and centrist Dems. A lot of Democrats from the Midwest, who you know have never found her particularly helpful in their elections, and are now saying that they could join up with some of these new members who promised on the trail not to vote for Pelosi and they could have enough to block them. So there's a lot of progressive gripes, and she does have some work to do to win over some some new progressives. But this is mostly a, a moderate or centrist revolt here.
1: You know, here's the question in my head. Is this about a person, Nancy Pelosi, or is this about the direction of the Democratic Party?
0: A lot of it is about... So the problem with the House Democratic Caucus, in a lot of eyes, even some who are supporting Pelosi now, she's been leader for 16 years. Steny Hoyer's been by her side for that same amount of time as her deputy. And Jim Clyburn, who's the majority whip, the number three position, or I guess he's assistant minority leader right now, he's been the number three since 2008. So what you've seen is a lot of members uh, not having a lot of room to advance, you know, to the top of leadership. We've seen some who really had high aspirations of being speaker one day, like Chris Van Hollen. He jumped to the Senate. Uh, Rahm Emanuel, he went to the White House. Joe Crowley, I mean, he lost his primary. Mm. So there's just a lot of frustration, and they don't think that Pelosi is ever going to leave unless they force her out. So that's part of it. Mm.
1: So who else the Democrats got?
0: Well, we'll see. The strategy, you know, what I'm hearing from a lot of people who support Pelosi say is you can't beat someone with no one. And there is not currently an announced challenger to Pelosi. That's not really the strategy. The strategy from these rebels or revolters or whatever we're calling them is to demonstrate there's no way that she can get a majority that she needs on the floor. That people have made commitments, so she should bow out and then the process can work through itself to try and find a replacement. Which sounds kind of harebrained, but I actually think it's a better idea than having a direct challenger go against her. Hmm. Because if there is, then Pelosi can beat that person in the the caucus vote where you only need half the caucus and say well, it's resolved, I've beaten all of my challengers, and use that to then go to the floor. Hmm. You know, we've seen Marsha Fudge, who's a congresswoman from Ohio and one of the lead Pelosi antagonists. She's mentioned that uh, she's considering a run. But, you know, I really think this whole plan rests on just showing her that the math will never work for her and allowing her to get out of the way and then move on with the process. Hmm.
1: Okay, one more thing that's been on my mind as I think about this power struggle in D.C. is that Omar line from The Wire. (laughs) Like, if you're going to come for the king, you best not miss. Right. So are there any tricks Pelosi might have up her sleeve here? I mean, you mentioned she's been in power a long time.
0: Well, she has the entire national democratic apparatus to apply pressure on people. We've already gotten reports that, you know, John Kerry and Al Gore and some other national Democrats are calling these new members to try to persuade him. I am certain that that will be Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton soon. We've had 13 unions, I think, have announced their support. NARAL, Pro-Choice America, has announced their support. All of these Democratic interest groups, they're all zoning in. You know, as far as actual vote-by-vote tricks, one thing that she could do is try to convince some of her opponents who say they won't vote for her to vote present instead which would lower the threshold that she needs on the floor down from 218. Um, That's something that, you know, I think she is trying to do right now, but a lot of members don't want to look like wusses on the floor either. You know, I was just at her press conference today. She said she would never accept Republican votes. She could try to get some Republicans to vote present, too, because they might want to keep her around because they think she's – you know, a a good foil. It's
1: good to have an enemy.
0: Yeah, even though that didn't work so well for them this last time, but, you know, they still think that probably takes a couple points off of Democrats' edge having her around.
1: All right, so buckle up. I love our little chats, Jim. Thank you. Yeah, that was fun. Jim Newell covers Congress for Slate. And that's the show. And guys, we have one more day of what next until we go on a teeny tiny, so small hiatus. And we're going to meet you back here after the holidays. Before we do that, we're asking you to leave us a review on iTunes, tell us what you think of the show, how we can make it better. Your reviews also help other people find us, so bonus. What Next is hosted by me, Mary Harris, and produced by Mary Wilson and Jason DeLeone. Our engineers, Terrence Bernardo, talk to you tomorrow.